0: The Intralingo World Lit podcast, where we explore the diversity of the world and also our shared humanity through books. I'm Lisa Carter, founder and creative director of Intralingo. And today I'm so pleased to be speaking to Nazanin Hozar about her debut novel, Aria. So welcome, Nazanin. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, I wonder if you would start by just introducing us to Aria. Well, uh, Aria is a
1: novel about uh, a little infant uh, who is abandoned on the, on a side of a road um, by a mother who cannot take care of her. And she is discovered by a driver in the Iranian army who takes her and begins to raise her. But... uh, because he has some difficulty at home with his wife, um, uh, Arya is then sort of taken up by another woman who becomes a second mother to her and raises, starts raising her, she's a wealthier woman. And in this way, Arya sort of moving through the different classes of Iranian society. Um, and yeah, the, the story does take place, place in Iran and we start sort of in, um, the early 1950s and we moved in through the 60s and 70s and lead up to the iranian revolution of 1979 and uh, it really is about this young this little girl turning into a young woman growing up into a young woman and the many people she meets uh, around in her life and how they are coping with the restrictions and difficulties and oppressive forces in their lives uh, as they kind of go forward towards the, the revolution of 79.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, and um, you were born in Iran. You live yes, in I... Canada. Yes. Um, and the novel is set entirely in Iran. Why was, why was that important to you to explore this time period or this place? Well, I was
1: very interested in trying to understand why the revolution happened and why Iran is the way it is today in the Iran that I was born in and raised in as a child. But in order to do that, you sort of have to move back in time and try to understand what came before. And so I had to really start uh, initially in really the, the, the decade and the time where things began to really change for Iran. And it, it started in the year where there was a coup that was um, instigated by the British and the, and the Americans in 1953. And the birth of this girl, this little girl, infant coincides with this coup, with this time of this coup in 1953. So the two timelines are, are really running parallel to each other. And uh, it was a real in- interesting creative exercise for me to try to explore.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the things I loved most about the book, and there's a lot I loved about it, um, was that politics, it, it plays a role, but it's like its own character, you could say. And yep. yet it's not, it's not the subject of the story, but what i found interesting is just that notion how politics affects lives and it's yeah
1: yeah very much so um i didn't want the book to become sort of a preaching text about <laughs> sort of you know real politique and uh the you know sort of getting involved too much into any kind of political discourse. It really had to be about um, uh, people's lives and everyday universal themes that affect all of us, regardless of you know where we live and where we are raised. But um, there's no doubt that the politics that is going on in the background of these people's lives is eventually going to very much affect them and sort of dictate the path and courses that their lives take. And that always had to be sort of in the background, sort of um, very much in in the in the sort of air, as we as it were. And um, I that had to sort of be at the forefront of my mind all the time, um, but without making it too without making the book too political, too. Um, too, I, like I said, too much of a textbook, not instead of a creative, it's a creative endeavor of a fictional novel. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, my cat is becoming a little bit out of control here That's in okay. the
0: background. You might hear him.
1: That's uh, alright.
0: Yeah, mine was um, bothering me just before we started recording, and I thought, oh no. <laughs> yeah. I'll just get a grip on him somehow. That's okay. Um,
1: But uh, yeah, definitely um, uh, the objective is to to make this about universal lives and people's lives rather than um, sort of of political, um, you know, events or whatnot. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I heard you say in another interview that one thing you want people to take away from the book Aria is exactly that. It's a sense of, empathy of of seeing um Tehran and Iran really through the eyes of of Arya and discovering that we're not all that different
1: of course you know one of the first things I um experienced when I first immigrated to Canada was um people sort of looking at me and my family very differently and expecting us to behave differently and be different and um, questioning our sort of customs or way of being. And I always was very confused by that because I always thought that we, in my mind, we were no different from anyone else who was living here. I was not understanding why they were looking at us with such othering eyes Mm -hmm. with such different um, expectations of how we were supposed to be and um, and one thing and to this day I feel that um, the sort of gaze especially the western gaze towards the east and towards countries like Iran is always um, sort of it is a projection of sort of um, sort of othering and I'd almost want to say it definitely is a sort of prejudice uh, where they've sort of stereotyped and uh, pigeonholed the people into to into roles of uh, having. being being sort of this kind of religion and this kind of uh, uh, sort of comportment that people um, carry themselves in and carry themselves with but ultimately uh, these differences are very superficial um, and really uh, people are just human beings with the same desires and needs and um, wants and Loves and hates and and so on and fears and and worries. And um, and what I'm I'm really doing the story that I'm writing could really be taking place anywhere anywhere in the world. And um, people ask me a lot about sort of this Iranian experience and refer to the book as sort of uh, an Iranian book but it just happens to be that these lives are taking place in I- Iran and this story is taking place in Iran. It really could be taking place. Absolutely. Anywhere. I, I could trans- transfer the story in Poland or um, even the United States. I'm certain that similar, something similar has happened in the United States or yeah. anywhere else in the world. Um, and uh, so it's it's not about the the country so much as about um, the the quality of life of individual people.
0: hmm A hundred percent. I so agree with that. And that, you know, really is exactly what I'm about in my work with Intralingo and exploring books because I think in some ways, like you said, about the history as well. Um, you know, if it's too textbook or that it it feels distanced, but if we can put ourselves in the shoes of a character in fiction, um, we immediately see that they are just like us, even if they're vastly different. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that difference just
1: again, um, it may seem may seem different at the beginning because like like I said it is superficial but once you dig in you start to realize that it's not it's not really it's not really there mm-hmm. it's just uh, it's, a, it's a it's a very surface level thing yeah um and that it, I love that you're doing this work because that's uh very much what uh you know when I when I read um works by say Rohinton Mistry or or um, Salman Rushdie or Alif Shafak or anyone who's yes. writing from cultures that are very different mm-hmm. from say maybe so- somewhat similar to wh- where I come from but again different from the west and so on. After the first few pages you're no longer thinking of them as culturally different you're just fallen into the characters minds Mm -hmm. and lives and loves and uh they no longer become culturally separate from you you're you're fully uh fully immersed
0: into the into that person yes and it's just human to human Exactly. Because it's it's about our emotion. It's how we relate to them or feel about them. And you know, Aria is an incredible character. As you say, she was abandoned um, just as an infant. She was rescued um, by the man who becomes her father. Um, she lives in very difficult circumstances in her younger life, um, her early childhood um and yet aria is so full of love she has a lot of anger at Mm -hmm. times but her capacity to never stop loving i think is one of the things that i found most incredible about her
1: yes i think that and it's interesting where that comes from i think um but I, but I think a lot of people are like that. I mean I, I know of you know, I mean, like we've heard many stories of people with extremely um, difficult lives who've lived through tri- tribulations uh, and who still have a great capacity for loving and mm-hmm. for empathy. Um, and it's just a, it's just a, a will that, that they have, a power that they have. and it's a survival instinct, I think. Um, because I think once you're not able to do that, you might really fail at life. You might really, Mm. um, really sort of lose the game of life (laughs) as it were. Um, and I think that that is her survival strategy that she understands very early on that, um, in order to be able to live life fully, she needs to have that capacity. But she also does have the one, uh, that one relationship with her father Behrouz, who Mm -hmm. is a very loving man. And I think that that one relationship saves her, um, that she is able to receive love from him and understands what love is. And so despite all the difficulties and sort of some of the horrors she goes through, that love that she gains from him early on provides her with that nour- that nourishment, which eventually allows her to give that love back as she gets older.
0: Mm-hmm. I found that really interesting as well because um, it seems like a lot of um, so. Um, Aria's birth mother, Mary, you know, is really forced to, to abandon her. She really has no choice. Um, and her first adoptive mother, Zara is very distant. And, you know, this ad- adoption was sort of forced on her by her, her husband, Beiruz. Um, Fereshteh... Uh, Aria's second sort of adoptive mother is also very distant she has had her own traumas yeah. so the women that Aria grows up with as mother figures are all quite distant and hurt themselves they're traumatized in their own ways um, and so is her father Beirut but he's very um emotive, very loving, very, um, he definitely seems to be the biggest role model for her.
1: Yes, absolutely. And he's, he's sort of the saving grace. He's the one that that provides that necessary, that that thing that every child needs that necessary sort of injection of love early on in life, that becomes the foundation for the rest of a human being's life. And I think had Arya not had that, then she would really be lost. But mm-hmm. because she does have that um, early on, that allows her the capability to, to make friendships and have love and be able to have some sort of stable relationship later on. Mm-hmm. And um, where he gets it from, who knows? Um, yeah. he's, able to, he's able to have that fortitude um to pass that on to his to his daughter that Mm -hmm. strength somehow he he's able to to carry that that strength within him Mm -hmm. Um, but it's definitely the saving grace i think and it's it's interesting that it's the male figure that is able to be that maternal that is able to pass on that maternal love
0: Mm -hmm. that
1: she needs very much
0: yeah even her um her birth mother when she does eventually meet her uh, mary's husband, he's also much more um, loving and joking and close to his daughters than than mary is that's right
1: because mm-hmm. the women the women in this novel are all very damaged i, I the 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 objective was to sort of show how. How the society, being very um, male-oriented, being very very misogynistic, um, has damaged women immensely, and um, these women, while strong to some level, are are left dealing and reeling with the pain and the hurt that they've succumbed to throughout their lives, mm-hmm. and. It this sort of is the consequence of what they've gone through, what they've had to deal with, and it, it comes out with this sort of generational um inability to not be able to mother properly and pass on stability. And um, I'm not saying that's the case for all Iranian women, I'm only particularly no. <laughs> Um, have this in my story <laughs> yes. because there's many Iranian women who are very mothering and loving and uh, powerful but um, in this particular case we have this these remnants of this long term uh, abuse that's, that these women have experienced that may, sort of renders them unable to uh, be there for this little girl mm-hmm. and it's the men who have not had to deal with abuse as much and the the pains of dealing of growing up in a very misogynistic society um well they ha- they they have grown up in a misogynist society but it's benefited them um and so they have the strength to help this little girl and the girls the little girls in their lives their daughters
0: yeah yeah, yeah that's such an interesting twist because we often think that in a misogynistic society the men are all again we blanket you know yeah. sort of these traits but uh this really shows us something different
1: yeah well it's no good to always uh blanket everything together and and sure. lump everyone into sort of generalized sort of accusatory ter- terms and um mm-hmm. uh sort of uh, characteristics and personalities you know they're always always exceptions and um and there are, and I've seen with my own eyes, very um, loving, kind fathers.
0: So um, there's always room for diversity. Yes. Good. Yeah, absolutely. I love that this breaks a stereotype. It's fantastic. Yeah. The other thing I really liked is how Tehran itself as a city really is a character in the novel. Um you know, there's the main avenue, which I'm sure has a different name now, but yeah. Palavi Street that runs straight up, kind of like a spine. And there's um, the North and the South, and we see that they're very different socioeconomically. Um, but the novel also shows us that just truly the cosmopolitan nature. And by that, I mean that maybe the diversity, not in terms of socioeconomic, But we see, um, you know, the Baha'i faith, and there are Muslims, and there are Christians, and there are wealthy, and there are poor, Um, there are the street sellers, Um, it really uh, paints a really incredible picture of a city that, again, breaks a stereotype that we might uh, imagine Tehran to be.
1: Yes, very much so. And, and I, that was something that I was a goal of mine to make sure that that came across in the novel. I felt that um, perhaps this was something that much of the West wasn't aware of, of how vast and different and diverse Tehran was. Um, and even growing up in my own childhood and uh, even growing up here in, in Canada, um, as I began to learn more about the city of my birth, I became even more aware of how Mm -hmm. truly diverse and incredible it was, especially in the sixties and seventies before much of, much of these minority groups were sort of driven out after the revolution. Um, but even today they exist. Um, And I wanted to put this on display. I wanted to really Mm -hmm. sort of, this was a way for me to sort of, uh, you know, play with this and, uh, really show, I mean, this is, we're, we're talking about sort of the Persian civilization, which, which had for, for thousands of years, all of this mix of groups of people and, uh, diverse cultures and religions if you even if you read it read in the bible you'll you'll find find this information there so i wanted this on the page in my novel and um, this was a really great way for me to show this tapestry of what tehran really is Um, and the best way to do this was to have this central character Arya, who has all these other characters running around her sort of connected to her and each of these characters that were sort of uh, connected to her and running interconnected and running through each other and Mm -hmm. through her, each one could play a different role and have a different uh, sort of fulfill a role religiously, culturally, economically. And I could have Tehran as the sort of the backdrop for all that to play. So Mm -hmm. it sort of becomes like a tapestry in which all of this could be displayed and uh it provided it was a great creative exercise more than anything Mm -hmm. Um, as opposed to i wasn't trying to again turn it into a sort of textbook thing (laughs) where i'm writing a historical text but really a very creative exercise for me yes to do
0: yeah, I love the way you describe it as a tapestry that that really fits and really suits it. And yeah, I mean, it, Persia, my gosh, it, there is so much there, and uh, and it's lovely to be able to have this this glimpse of it because it's not really very accessible now. Yeah, at the moment, it's closed off, mm-hmm.
1: and uh, especially with COVID, it's even more closed off and. Yes. Unfortunately, it's closed off to Canada, uh, with with um, the embassy closing down here, and it, it, everything's become more difficult to access. And uh, this was a way, perhaps, to allow Canadians and other English English readers to see Iran a little bit. Of course, this is the Iran of the '60s and '70s and '50s, and I, you know, it the Iran of today is even more vibrant, and uh, it's a bit more, it's not not like it was in the 80s and, you know, late 70s when I was born, where it was, uh, unfortunately, because of the war and the revolution, it was more closed off. Um, today, it's a bit more open, it's more free. Um, it still obviously is under the regime of the Islamic Republic, but... Um, It's much more free and open than one would think
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you can have have many freedoms when you when you go there and and as a, if you go there as a tourist there's a lot to discover and Mm -hmm. enjoy and
0: um, not something to be deterred by no I am I'm completely fascinated I have some Iranian friends and I, I was able to work once with a, with an Iranian writer a little bit and uh, I, I intend to go absolutely yeah I think <laughs> one you'd day have
1: a, you'd have a great time and discover many uh, incredible things if you go to the a lot of the historic places especially exactly
0: exactly yeah yeah, yeah no it's I, I'm absolutely one day <laughs>
1: Yeah. Fingers crossed, especially when COVID ends, we you know, because absolutely. at the moment it's unfortunately not the time.
0: <laughs> oh, no one is going anywhere, are they yeah. right now? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. But, but through books we can. <laughs>
1: exactly. That's that's the great escape, right? That's it is. the beautiful thing about them.
0: It really is. Yeah, think? it absolutely. Um, I think another thing I was thinking about with with Aria is You know, um, I think it is, um, in, in Aria's second home, I think it is Maisie who talks about, um, she says, love is a terrible thing. It's not what dreamers say it is. And, uh, I just wondered, you know, again, as I've said, Aria has this capacity for love, um, and I just wondered if if that was one of the truths in this novel for you was uh, was about about love and um, the way it is expressed.
1: Well, Maisie is this, in a sense, the sort of truth speaker in the. She's she's the maid who works in uh, the the second home that Arya ends up going to, and very sort of uneducated person who has been a maid since she was 13, 12 years old. But in a way, she has a sort of life intelligence um, and s- tends to be able to see the truth in things somehow. Mm-hmm. And um, I think she, what she's saying to Arya there is um, in a way a reality check, trying to sort of take her out of a bit of a fantasy land that she might be entering. Um, and, and I, I kind of, because of the nature of the novel um, and sort of where I take the novel by the end, um, there's a sense that I, I wanted to create a sense of the inevitable and um, without giving too much away that maybe for some people love works out, but for others, Um, there is a trajectory that is much more unfortunate and and not only love but life and um, it's not always sort of you you sort of have to have both feet on the ground in a sense and understand that uh, things are not not always what we dream up in our heads and not the fantasies we sort of create I sort of had to write the novel with these sort of realistic uh, sort of warnings going throughout with sort of these these, um, uh, sort of um, warning signs going throughout. And this Macy character is the person who's um, in a way um, that, that anchor point throughout the novel, who's, who's s- sort of saying to everyone, well, especially to Aria, you know, be careful, watch out for what's about to come. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's sort of how I was approaching the novel no, with, the, with, the, with my eye onto
0: the future. Right, yes. Mm-hmm. So as you were writing the novel, you knew where it was going then? Yes. Always from the very beginning or at some point along the way? Uh, f-
1: from the very beginning. Yeah, I had the ending c- pretty clear clear in my mm-hmm. mind. Yes. Um, so I obviously knew what was going to happen. And so I knew on a macro level what was going to happen, that mm-hmm. revolution was going to happen and things were obviously going to turn out n- not so great. And then I, I knew on a micro level in terms of particular characters, what was going to happen to them. Okay. So I had it all sort of planned out ahead of time. I tend to be like that. Even with my next novel, I know what's going to happen to the particular characters. So that what that allows you to do is within the storytelling, within the narrative that allows you to uh, put in certain clues and certain things, yes. um, uh, there's, I, I call them sort of anchor points, sort mm-hmm. of um, pit like pinpoints you can put in throughout yes. to sort of prepare the reader, right, for something that's coming. Yes. And that that creates this type of resonance. Once that happens, once the, the event takes place in the future, it later on, that resonates back
0: to what you placed earlier in the novel Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. mm-hmm well it's incredibly well done it's it's a very it's an incredibly rich novel um it is complex and yet it's not there are a lot of characters but it is very clear to us the role that each one plays as I say I felt like politics was a character I felt like the city was another character it's it's really multi-layered thank you Yeah, yeah thank you it's fantastic. Yeah, that was the goal, to
1: to make it accessible, but uh, but sort of a, a painting in a way that you can look at each corner and find something, but
0: something a painting that's cohesive at the same time. Mm-hmm. It definitely is. I, I found another thing that uh, I, I only picked up on, I didn't pick up on it first, but when I was you know looking back at the novel before we spoke today. Um, I realized that, so Aria was born, she was not named, she was abandoned a couple of days later. Um, And I hadn't made that connection to then when she has her own child, she doesn't name the child. It takes her two years. That's right. What is it about the power of names? Well
1: that's something in the novel where the the names of the characters are each very particular. They all have um, you know there there's a character her friend two of her friends have very very significant names. One is Hamlet. Yes. And the other one is Mitra and Mitra is a ancient Persian god um, the, the or there's another god based on that is similar to it, called Mitras, um, that you may have heard of before. But um, and then Hamlet, of course, is named after the character Hamlet. But um, and uh, v- various characters have these names in the, in the book um, to kind of resonate with things that we m- may know of already. Mm-hmm. Um, in sort of popular culture or histor- in a historical context. And um, that was very important to me and and it's a sort of a stumbling block because I feel like if you don't have a name in life, life hasn't quite begun.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you're, you're not quite starting living life until that point of having a name. It sort of brings you into life, sort of makes you living. And the fact that she doesn't name her child for so long. Um, and I know of people, I, I, I know of one couple in particular for a whole year, they didn't name, name their, their child. Mm-hmm. Um, and it puts the child in a kind of limbo and puts the, it, it sort of makes this sort of non-entity in a way. Yes. And they refer to the baby as a baby or the kid or something like that. But the the human being that isn't quite whole yet, and um, and um, I that I found that very fascinating is as as if she's still she's so afraid of having this child to take care of that she doesn't quite want to bring it into the world. She's afraid mm-hmm. of the responsibilities because of how her own life. Uh, her, the beginnings of her her own life were so difficult that she now has to do the same thing and and uh take care of this infant and and have responsibilities for this infant so um it's a bit of a subconscious thing but um eventually she does figure out mm-hmm. a name for it but um i it was a real callback to all the sort of na- naming that is in the in the novel the, the uh, references to the different naming
0: yes and now that you say that the the woman in red in the plaza who right. um, who actually ultimately helps Aria discover the name for her child uh, now I've just clued in that her name also is significant of course because that's right, <laughs> that's right so there's many different things like that in yes. the novel mm. yeah wonderful yeah. it's a wonderful rich complex beautiful novel I'm so glad to have had the opportunity to read it and uh and to speak to you Nazanin thank you so much thank you so much Lisa I appreciate it thank you and you said you're working on another novel now yes. is it- connected related completely different it's completely different <laughs> okay. it's completely different yeah. yeah yeah well I can't wait to read it I truly truly do admire your work um I wish you the best of luck with this and uh and I hope you will uh let us know when when the next one is out we will do Thank you so much. Thanks for speaking to me today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. So thank you to everyone for watching on YouTube or listening via the podcast. Nazanin's um, bio and information links to the book Aria are in the show notes below. It would be wonderful if you wanted to comment um, about our conversation, share with us a little bit about your experience with Aria when you get a chance to read it. Uh, And stay tuned for the next episode of the Intralingo World Lit podcast.